And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Okay, today we will be talking to Cable Green. He is a CEO and head of a director of open education at Creative Commons. And we, um, well, we're anticipating that this episode will have nothing to do with the coronavirus, but who knows? Um, Because right now, Like everything has to do with the coronavirus. Yeah, but I'm very much looking forward to talking to someone not about coronavirus. I don't know how you feel about it. Um, yeah, so um, here it goes. The interview with Cable Green. Sure. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation. My name is Cable Green. I'm currently the interim CEO at Creative Commons, and my day job is the director of open education at Creative Commons. Okay. And what does it mean, director of open education, interim CEO? What do you do? <laughs> well, so maybe I'll start with Creative Commons. Uh, Creative Commons is a global nonprofit organization which uh, stewards and builds the legal tools that the world uses to share, that they use to share uh, open educational resources. Uh, museums use our tools to share their works in the public domain. Uh, open science uses our works to share scientific knowledge and data and research articles. And so uh, we build the CC licenses that, that people around the world use. We build the public domain tools that take works from copyright and put them into the public domain or mark them as being in the public domain. So uh, Creative Commons does that. We do the, the legal piece of that. Uh, and we defend those licenses in court and we teach people about the licenses through our CC certificate programs. So the, there's, there's the legal aspect of what Creative Commons does. Uh, we also have multiple programs, uh, program areas that we work in. I lead as director of open education. I lead our work in education. Uh, and open education is all about Uh, content. It's about sharing uh, edu open educational resources. It's about practices. So what can we do in schools and universities and, and, uh, and technical colleges uh, with our pedagogical approaches and our practices that we couldn't do when we're working in closed environments? Uh, and we work in po the policy space as well. And so uh, one of the things we help governments uh, at all levels and foundations around the world do is to ensure that when they provide funding, uh, public funding in particular, that everything that's publicly funded is openly licensed by default. And so, uh, so we work in all those spaces in education. We also work in the GLAM space or galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. So for example, we just uh, announced with the Smithsonian museums that uh, they put approximately 3 million works into the public domain using our CC0 public domain dedication. And so we help museums go open, if you will. Uh, we also work with, uh, with publishers and journals. And so we're into the open access space as well. 
Uh, and at one time, we don't have it now, but we had a whole uh, science unit. We had an open science team at Creative Commons. We're eager to get back to that space as well, but uh, we lost our director to Sage, who I see was one of your other <laughs> interviewees recently. Uh, so we work in all these different uh, program spaces. We also have a global network. So Creative Commons has, I had to look at the last count, I think we're in 76 countries around the world, including Germany. And we've got teams of volunteers uh, that work to teach other people about uh, open uh, and open licensing in particular. And so we do all these things. We're a bit of a, a mix. Just like naively thinking, you would think, okay, if I put something on the internet, whatever it is, anybody can use it, right? So what, can you just like explain for the, for the really non-knowing, uh, why would you need the Creative Commons license? That's a good question. And we, we talk about this every week with different audiences. Uh, so in most countries around the world, almost all countries, when somebody creates something, so I've, I have some notes here that I took on a piece of paper. The moment that I wrote these down on this piece of paper, they were automatically copyrighted and automatically protected by, in my case, U.S. copyright law. But then through international conventions, they're protected in Germany and it's protected in South Africa and in other countries as well. And so um, automatically I own it and uh, you don't have any rights to do anything with the work that I wrote down. Uh, you may have in your country uh, some fair use or fair dealing rights. Uh, some countries have those rights, some countries don't, where you can actually use uh, copyrighted works for some purposes without getting permission. Um, so there are those exceptions and limitations to copyright, which we like to see and we advocate for those. Uh, but for the most part, you can't do anything with this. Even if I put it on the internet and I make it freely downloadable, uh, it would be a violation of copyright for you to say, make a movie out of my ideas or to write a song using the lyrics that I wrote down, for example. Those would be copyright violations, uh, which is fine if the intent of the author is not to share. Uh, but many of us around the world think that sharing is a pretty good idea. So my, my background and my expertise is education. And if you think about what we do in education is we share knowledge, we share, uh, our, we share ideas. We share, <laughs> that's sort of the whole point of education is we're, we're sharing with each other, we're learning together. And to do education without sharing is extremely difficult. Imagine walking into a classroom and the professor saying, no, I'm not going to share any information with you. It would be a, a difficult class. And so when, uh, when educational resources, for example, are open, uh, we can uh, take them, modify them, translate them into new languages, uh, uh, change them so that they're more appropriate for the students that I'm working with in my class. Uh, maybe the educational resource was created in Germany and the examples uh, in this biology course are of, uh, of German food and German trees and birds, et cetera. Uh, but I teach in South Africa and that's just not useful to me. So I need to take out the German examples and put in South African examples. Uh, when there's an open license on a copyrighted work, uh, you have the legal rights to do that without getting sued. And so Creative Commons has this suite of six different open licenses uh, where the author or the copyright holder can choose which freedoms and which permissions they give to the public. And they don't need a lawyer for this. This is all free. Uh, the licenses are standard. They're translated into, I think we're up to 33 languages around the world, and they're easy to understand. 
And so uh, for and the different licenses have one of four different conditions. So the first condition is called attribution or giving somebody credit. That's required on all of the CC licenses because we firmly believe that uh, if I use uh, Luisa's uh, content that she's created or her research or whatever it might be, that I need to give her credit. Right? When we don't do that in education, we call that plagiarism and that's a problem. Uh, but doesn't matter what field you work in, we should say thank you by giving attribution to whoever shared. So that's required on all the licenses. The other three conditions are optional. So one is called share alike. And share alike means if you take my work, so if I put a share alike license on my work and you take it, you modify it in a significant way. So you make a translation of it, or you take out chapter two of my textbook and write a new chapter two, or you take my image and you move it from, uh, from full color to black and white and you add some new elements to it. Those are all, uh, those are all adaptations under copyright law and they would trigger a share alike. Share alike basically says, whatever you do with my work, you have to share that new version forward under the same terms that I shared the original under. So if you think about Wikipedia, every article on Wikipedia is under a Creative Commons attribution share alike license. The next condition is non-commercial. So non-commercial means you can take my work, you can use it for free, you can modify it, but you can't sell access to it. You can't use it primarily for commercial purposes. And what that boils down to is, you know, you, know, I, you can't take my work put it online and sell it or sell access to it. The last option is called no derivatives. And that means you cannot modify my work. The, the exception there is you can make modifications for your own personal use, but you can't share those modifications with anyone else. So it's a very, it's more on the restrictive side. Now what you can do with these four conditions is you can mix and match them together and get six different Creative Commons licenses. In addition to that, we have our public domain tools. So if I wanted to not have this copyrighted, this set of notes, uh, and I instead wanted to put them in the public domain today, right now, uh, I can do that. It's called, we have a tool called CC0, which it's a public domain dedication. So what I'm saying when I use CC0 is I'm giving up my copyright worldwide, and I'm dedicating this to the worldwide public domain. So we have all, all those different tools to make sharing easy. So, uh, Wikipedia articles, for example, all the uh, images on Wikipedia, they, they are in public domain, right? Or um, it's, is that not true? So It depends on the image. So, ah, okay. uh, all the Wikipedia articles, the text of the article is under the CC BY SA or the Attribution Share Alike license. Mm -hmm. uh, the images, and usually they're in Wikimedia Commons, uh, they, they have different CC license on them. Sometimes they're in the public domain. Uh, sometimes they're under the attribution license or CC BY. Sometimes they're under BY SA, attribution share alike. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, uh, like for education purposes, that sounds all very logical and um, quite clear. And um, I think also for scientists who are, for example, um, I mean, engaged in education more at the like uh, sharing uh, data at conferences or something like that. So when you have PowerPoint that you can, if you put it on the conference website or in some kind of repository, that you give it some kind of license so it can be shared, right? So this, I totally get it. Um, I was wondering, um, there's a lot of discussion about uh, copyright and scholarly publications, so publishing in science. Basically don't know that when they publish in this regular 
I call them regular journals, although they're not really regular, <laughs> but basically in this closed uh, mode journals that they give up the copyright. And because uh, we also do trainings as part of the, the Orion project. And um, when we tell that to people, they're quite shocked. Like, what do you mean? I am turning over the copyright to the publisher, right? Um, and also wondering what does it actually mean? So I cannot use the data anymore myself. I cannot use the text or I cannot use the images. What part of the copyright am I actually transferring to the publisher? Do you, can you comment on that? Can you explain this? Yeah, the answer is whatever's in the contract. <laughs> so oh, okay, well. <laughs> uh, oftentimes as educators, we're, we don't pay attention to the fine detail when we're signing contracts and we really need to. And so the good news is um, not, you know, not everybody's a lawyer. Um, and yet there are some really smart lawyers out there which have uh, created things for professors like authors. They're called authors addendums, right? And so prior to publishing with an Elsevier journal, for example, I can also fill out an author's addendum, which is a, a legal uh, tool to basically say, well, not basically, it says to the publisher, I still hold the copyright to this and I'm publishing it under a certain license. And if you don't accept those terms, publisher, you can't publish my article. Uh, another way of, around this is you don't publish with closed journals. So instead, what you do as a researcher is you only publish in open access journals. And the open access journals are set up and established and have principles around openness. And so open licensing is baked into the, the DNA, if you will, of what they're already doing. It's also important for us as individuals, as scientists, as researchers, as educators, to have our own personal open policies that says, when I create something, I'm going to share it. So for example, my own personal open policy is that whatever I create, um, if it's something that um, I think I might want to control a little bit and modify in the future, then I'll put a Creative Commons attribution license on it. Um, if it's something that uh, that I think is like I'm, I'm not going to mess with it again and it's it's done, if you will, uh, I put it into the public domain using CC0. And so people in you can there's lots of choices of licenses. Choose the one you want. Some people start with more uh, conservative licenses, uh, like a, a buy S, uh, an SA and NC license or a share like non commercial license. They'll move to uh, more permissive licenses over time. But this idea of thinking that as individuals, we have power because we hold the copyright to what we produce and we need to exercise that power uh, by deciding under what terms we agree to share our works under. And then it's easier to think about what my relationship is with a publisher, for example. Um, I don't just sign my rights over, I'm actually thinking about, I own it, I get to decide how it's used and you, the publisher that wants to take my work, need to respect that. And I simply won't turn my work over to you until you agree to publish under my terms. And like on practical terms, so um, basically, um, if I created something, whatever, let's say I just want to share some slides that I used for teaching or something, um, I basically just put this kind of logo on them, right? And that's the license for the for my presentation. Or uh, is there any process you have to go through as in, um, I don't know, some kind of decision-making process of uh, I have to apply for it somewhere or, uh, I don't know. I mean, how complicated is it to license, actually? So it's very simple. Uh, yeah, we obviously, do have I'm a... trying to hear this answer like it's super simple. So. 
It is super simple. Okay. So uh, we do have something for people that want a little help. We have something called the license chooser. So if you go to any search engine and type in CC license chooser, it'll be the first link. And it asks you some questions. Do you want to share? Do you want to share? You know, do you want to reserve commercial rights for yourself? That kind of thing. You fill in the little dots and it tells you what license works best for you. Uh, and then it even gives you something you can copy and paste and put on your PowerPoint or put on your image credit or whatever. Um, so you can do that. Um, even more simple than that, you can just put uh, an attribution statement on your work that includes the license. So the best practice for we call it marking your work. Uh, the best practice for marking your article or your PowerPoint or you know information about an image, et cetera, is to list four pieces of information, the title, the author, the source, and the license, or TASL, T-A-S-L. So title, author, source, license. And the title is whatever the title of the work is, right? So if it's PowerPoint, it's the title of the PowerPoint or what have you. If it's the article, it's the title of the article. Author, it's probably you if you're the author of the work. Uh, source, where is it on the web, right? So it's the URL. Uh, oftentimes title and source can just be combined. You could just link the title. And then license, which license did you choose? So did you dedicate this to the public domain? Then you just write CC0 and you link to the CC0 page at Creative Commons. Uh, did you choose a CC BY license? Then you just type in, you can either write out Creative Commons attribution license, or you could just write CC BY and link to the CC BY uh, title or a license deed. And so it can be that simple. Uh, and then what people do when they have uh, a lot of works that they want to license. So in many cases, we work with universities that want to not just license a PowerPoint, or, or an entire course, they want to license an entire degree program. And so we'll have conversations with them of, you know, do you want to have one license for everything? Uh, and sometimes they do. And in that case, we'll create a really nice attribution statement that, that they like, and then they'll just apply it everywhere. So they'll do it once and just copy and paste. Mm -hmm. So it can be very simple. And uh, on the other end, so um, I want to use work that's uh, been licensed. What do I do? How do I do it properly? So I copy the image and then I copy the license, or do I also have to say the author and the URL? I mean, what's the what's the procedure? Yeah. So the, well, first there's how do you find it in the first place? There's the, the discovery question, uh, and the good news is there are many places to go to look for openly licensed images. Uh, you can go on Google and you can filter your search by by open license. You can go to Flickr and you can filter. You can go to Flickr Commons and only look at images that are under Creative Commons licenses or in the public domain. You can go to CC Search. Uh, we have our own search engine that looks at images from all around the world that will only give you back images that are either CC licensed or in the public domain. So there's different places to look. Um, but then yes, you get you get that you find the image that you want. Uh, you download you know the highest resolution that you need and so that you have the file. That's important. Uh, and then same thing, you mark the work with title, author, source, license. And if the author has done a good job, they've already provided that for you. So for example, if you go to CC Search, what you'll see is uh, we've we've provided you all that information. We've made it very easy to, uh, to get that information uh, so that you can put it into your work and properly mark it. And it's important to note that uh, giving somebody attribution 
is not just the a nice thing to do or the right thing to do, which it is. We should we should show our gratitude by saying thank you. <laughs> One of the ways we can do that is by giving good attribution. Um, but it's also legally required. So these, these are not optional, right? Uh, if you don't give attribution and somebody has put a Creative Commons license on a work, you're actually not only violating the license, but you're violating copyright law because these licenses are built on top of copyright and they respect copyright and they're uh, simultaneously backed by the full force of copyright. And so this is important stuff. Um, we need to give attribution when attribution's uh, re required. How does that look with CC0? So in giving attribution, I've come across sometimes images and it says CC0. And uh, if you would like, please attribute our, our name. How does that work in, in those situations? Yeah, it's a good question. So, uh, so CC0 is a public domain dedication. You're giving up your copyright. You're putting it in the public domain. There is no legal attribution requirement uh, when you do that. That said, the practice and the, the norm in open fields is to still give attribution. Uh, so there's a good article written by a guy named Dan Cohen called uh, CC0 plus buy. And what he's saying is, yeah, you know, use the CC0 work and attribution because it's the right thing to do. And if, if you're, uh, so I, I work in the education space, even when things are in the public domain, we don't plagiarize, right? We, st we still say where the work came from. And because if we plagiarize in the academy, we get fired. That's like the cardinal sin. And so I think, um, and the reason we do it is we need to respect authors that came before us, even if their works are in the public domain before. And we, we owe that to the, to the history of the academy and to the works that have been published. And the same thing's true in science. I'm sure there are there's scientific literature that's in the public domain because the author has died and 70 years have, have gone past and now the copyright has expired and the works in the public domain. Uh, that doesn't mean we shouldn't cite them properly. We shouldn't give attribution. So in many fields, uh, the norm is still to attribute even when the work is in the public domain. Um, what is important about, and this is Creative Commons stance on this, about uh, open access publishing is there is an ideal which we should strive for. Uh, one is that uh, wherever possible, the article or the text of the article should be under CC BY, uh, Creative Commons Attribution, or CC0. And the reason for that is so that the text of the article can be what's called text and data mined. So for example, um, so I, about eight, month, eight months ago, seven months ago, uh, had a liver transplant. And I had a liver transplant because I had bile cancer and there or bile duct cancer and there wasn't very much uh scientific literature about that and so if i wanted to do a proper analysis um, of that particular cancer to well actually i'm sorry there was a lot of research about that if i wanted to read all of that research it would take more time than i had to be honest and uh, what i can do now is there you know i could have computer programs go and analyze and do keyword searches and do uh, algorithmic analysis of the data of those articles and bring them back to me in seconds or minutes uh, to get the analysis that I want across, say, 100,000 articles. The only way to legally do that is if the text of the article is open in some way, either openly licensed or in the public domain. So that's one best practice. Another best practice is that the data, the research data that went into the writing of the article or the base data uh, should be in the public domain under CC0. Why? 
because we want all scientists around the world that are working on similar topics to be able to have access to my data. It's part of the transparency of science. Um, it's, it's a way of me saying, look, I didn't make up these results. This is the data. This is where I drew my conclusions from. And it also helps others, other labs and other scientists around the world uh, not have to replicate. Maybe, maybe they replicate my study to, uh, to, to not deny it or to confirm it. Uh, and then they can move forward and do the next piece of the research. But without my data, their work is more, uh, is more difficult. They may need to replicate and, and produce similar data, which could be a waste of time and resources. Uh, the so open the data in the public domain. The third really important component is how is, is the embargo period of publication. So how soon can everybody in the world read and get access to my article and my data? And ideal, that is zero, zero embargo period. So at the point of publication, everybody gets access. Our conversation did actually end up uh, going a lot further into the coronavirus, even though we were hoping it wasn't. But we did notice, or we can see in this example, that um, open science is the way to go forward with science and that sharing does make sense. So our conversation continued to that, but we decided to cut it out and uh, we went towards open education. So we've talked a lot about the open access space. Uh, we're doing this in open education, where in with education institutions around the world, once people think about and understand open educational resources and open education practices, they realize that not only is it more cost effective, because now you've taken the cost of textbooks to zero, um, it, not only does it make more sense educationally, because now I can take uh, published works and I can modify them, put them in local languages, give examples that make much more sense to my students. So my students are learning more deeply. So open education is not just an alternative or a cost savings. That's actually a better way to do education, just like open access is a better way to do research and science. Um, governments, as we talk to them for the first time about, hey, you should ensure that all publicly funded resources are openly licensed by default. Like they, they've never thought about that before. And it sounds really anti-capitalist and anti-market and they initially have a bit of a reaction to it but then when we start to put it in terms of look you are you the government are the stewards of the public money that you get from people in your country and that comes with great responsibility and part of that responsibility is to ensure that the money that you do spend has the highest return on investment and the most impact that it can possibly have so i'll use my own country as an example in the United States today, our federal government spends roughly uh, $10 billion, our, our federal and state governments combined, spend about $10 billion US dollars on educational resources for higher education, for universities and colleges. And they also spend about $10 billion, give or take, on primary and secondary education, or K-12. Um, that's a lot of money. What, how much money would it actually cost to do all of that open? Well, in, in primary and secondary or K-12, we have about 100 courses. There's you know 12 grades, about eight subjects per grade. It's about 100 courses. 
is it a million dollars per course? Is it 10 million per course? Right. If it's if it's a million per course, then you're talking about a hundred million dollars. You're certainly not talking 10 billion per year. And so right now the government's being incredibly wasteful with public dollars. And so if you start to have these types of conversations with governments, they realize we don't want to do that anymore. We want to be much more effective. We're going to require open licensing. So in the United States, for example, if you take a grant now from the U.S. Department of Labor, it requires a Creative Commons attribution license on whatever you create because the public paid for it. If you take a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, same thing. You have to put a, a, a license on it that requires attribution. If you take a grant from USAID to do anything about early childhood education, you must put a CC BY license. If you don't agree to those terms, you can't have the grant, right? So uh, ye who has money makes the rules. And in this case, the funders can simply say, and foundations do this as well, the Hewlett Foundation, the Gates Foundation on its research, they all require open licensing if you're going to take their money. And then the last example I'll give is, is museums. You think about museums or archives, the whole point of a museum is to preserve our culture and then to share it with the public uh, both in person in the museum and online. And if that's your mission, uh, just like the Smithsonian said a few weeks ago, uh, then shouldn't we, the Smithsonian took their works and dedicated it to the public domain using CC0. Why? Well, one is they know that most of the people on the planet will never get the opportunity to go to Washington, D.C. and walk on the mall and go to all the wonderful Smithsonian museums. Another thing is the Smithsonian has vaults of of uh, materials that will that in our lifetimes will never be displayed in the museum. There's just too much stuff. And yet they can go into those vaults and they can scan them with high resolution scanners. And for the sculptures, they can scan them with 3D scanners. And we can have access to all of that now. And if it's in the public domain, we can do anything we want with it. We can make new art history books. Scientists can study those artifacts in great detail because of the high resolution. All of the data about those artifacts uh, that they have were also shared in this data dump that they did uh, in their open access initiative, right? It's on mission. And so, um, and, and that's part of the awareness raising as well. As we're talking to these different audiences, these different constituencies around the world, I always start the conversation with what do you do and why do you do it? Let's talk about your mission before we talk about open. We'll get to that. But let's talk about what you want to accomplish in the world first. And more often than not, open helps them get there faster than closed does. Usually publishers are the ones that are kind of guaranteeing the quality of textbooks. But if we're taking textbooks away, is there that quality insurance? Are there publishers still there? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, there's a lot of answers to that. So in, in many cases, the publishers are still there. They just look, they're different kinds of publishers. So the example I'll give here is an organization called OpenStax. So OpenStax is housed or started out of Rice University in Texas. Um, they are a nonprofit and they create uh, extremely high quality textbooks using all the traditional uh, textbook publishing techniques and editorial or, uh, or editing services and you know, quality assurance, et cetera. And uh, they also give all those books away for free under a Creative Commons attribution license. Um, how do they do that? Partially foundations give them money to do that. 
partially, they have other services around the educational resources that they sell access to those services, and that provides income as well. Um, but these books are every bit as high quality as they as uh, Pearson Publishing or McGraw-Hill or anybody else's books. Um, they also have a huge part of the market share in North America, and that's spreading now around the world. They're working in the UK and Australia and in Latin America, but they're online. If you go to OpenStax, uh, O-P-E-N-S-T-A-S-T-A-X dot org, you'll see it. And they've got, I think they're up to 30 some titles. These are higher education textbooks, but they're also used in upper level high school or upper level secondary uh, courses. So that's one model. Another model is the individual faculty member uh, or multiple faculty members uh, create something. They could create a textbook or a course or whatever it might be. And they put a CC license on it and they put it out there in the world. Um, is that peer reviewed, edited? Is, you know, was there an editorial process? No. I mean, there was with those five people that built it, but they've put it out there and it's think about it like a preprint, right? So they're saying, this is our best work. Help make it better. <laughs> One of the reasons we put a CC license on it is we're sure that it has errors in it. And when you find them, please let us know or create an adaptation of it and uh, and give us attribution. But then we'd really like to know, like, ping us. Here's our email. Let us know what you did. Um, and and people are excited about that because that's a chance to for their work to get better and to, to meet other people and to, frankly, uh, have other people's good work come back to theirs and be reincorporated into the original. So that's another model. Another model is that there are big OER repositories all over the world. So India has an OER repository for the country. Um, we, there's, uh, there's OER Commons, which is has hubs for all over the world. Uh, you see uh, provinces in Canada that have some, at BC campus uh, is one in British Columbia where they have a big OER repository. There are repositories like the Open Textbook Network which are focused just on textbooks and, and giving, making that a one-stop shop for textbooks. Um, there's Merlot, it's a repository that's been around for a long time. Uh, there's repositories all across Europe. So that's all good. It's also a bit of a challenge when it comes to search and discovery, because when somebody comes to me and says, Cable, I'm sold. I love the idea of open education. Where do I find chemistry resources? The answer is go here and then go here and then go over here. And so, and that's not a very good answer. And so what happens a lot in university is the librarians uh, will create what they call library guides for OER for particular disciplines. So they'll say to their faculty, oh, if you're in chemistry, these are the places you want to go to look for chemistry textbooks, to look for chemistry courses, to look for chemistry simulations. So for example, there's a, a really great OER project called FET, uh, P-H-E-T, that's at the University of Colorado Boulder, and it's nothing but simulations. It's like online labs uh, to run experiments in chemistry, physics, uh, different math experiments that are difficult, complex things to understand, but you can manipulate the variables. And all of those are, uh, not only is all the content under a CC BY license, but they license all the software as well under an open source software license. And they just put it out there, right? So not a traditional publishing technique, but what's fascinating is if you go into any of their, so I would highly recommend you do this, go click on one of their simulations and then scroll down to the bottom of the page. And what you'll see is that educators all over the world have said thank you 
for them doing this work. And the way that they're saying thank you is not just giving good attribution, but they're creating teaching resources around these simulations. They're saying, hey, this syllabus goes really great with this simulation, or this textbook that I found goes really great with, you know, chapter two in this textbook aligns nicely with the simulation. So they're adding those resources. Nobody's paying for that. People are just saying, hey, this was my experience. I'd like to share it. They're also taking the content because it's under a CC BY license and they're translating because what UC Boulder does is they everything's in English, right? Which is useful if you speak English, but that's not useful to most people. And so these simulations are being translated because the authors have not only made it easy to do so, but they've made it legal to do so. And so there's just, in many cases, 10, 20 or more translations of these simulations. And now you're now they're reaching a whole audience that they never could have reached before. And so there's just, you know, it's just a different way of thinking about it. Traditionally with publishing, we've thought, oh, we have to turn our thing over. We have to turn our ownership or our copyright over. They do some magic at the publication that we that none of us can do because we're mere educators or we're just scientists. Like we can't do that. Uh, and then they're going to give us back something that's wonderful that becomes part of the canon that we need to read and respect. I think what's shifted now, you have to invest more of your time into judging quality. It, and it's very similar to um, the question Zoe asked for me. It's kind of similar to the question that a lot of scientists are asking. How do I know if something is open access or a preprint? How do I know that the quality is good. Yeah, this thing of like, if it's for free, is it really good? And the answer can only be, well, you have to deal with it. You have to judge yourself, right? I mean, you have to think about it and you have to invest a lot of time. And when we talk with teachers, because we have a teacher training program um, and our institution at the MDC, um, the teachers also say that uh, the beauty of like, um, you know, having a book from a publisher, like the traditional dumped on you kind of is you already have something you just deal with that you don't have to you know invest more time and effort to to get your things together to find the new resources on but they also say but this is also something that makes you a good teacher if you do invest the time and effort so um yeah that's the question um what world do we want to live in right and i think we just ha all have to do a bit more and not rely on this um usual models. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Um, I've got a friend that says that the the teacher is the ultimate arbiter of quality. So it's um, uh, the, my, my friend's, you know, is, is a college professor and she says uh, to abdicate the responsibility of quality to a publisher is irresponsible as an educator. So We've all, uh, so I used to teach as well, uh, taught education psychology and some other courses at university. And if I uh, would have accepted the publisher's textbook as being the gospel and having no errors in it, um, then I would have been failing my students because there were errors in these professionally, you know, very expensive, professionally published and very expensive textbooks. And so I was the ultimate arbiter of quality. I had to read the book and cross out the errors and write different uh, curricula that, that fixed those errors, which you know is exactly what we do with open educational resources as well. The difference is that open science or open educational resources or 
or whatever it might be, open data, open source software, is that we're 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 honest and transparent about it. So we say <laughs> we say here it is. This is the best we've been able to do. It probably has some errors in it, but I'm not hiding them from you. And I'm certainly not charging you a lot of money for my errors. I what I'm hoping is that you'll this is useful to you and that you can help fix it and improve it. And so if we can get if we can get our minds shifted in a slightly different way and start thinking about uh, collective action around iterative, iterative improvement, it's a much more interesting space. So what would it look like, for example, for the calculus teachers of the world to not use one calculus textbook, uh, but to have a whole suite of calculus materials? And the, the best ones are going to rise to the top. They're going to get the most use. They're going to get the most attention. And if people are constantly saying, hey, this could be better, or here's another example for this, or here's a translation of this one, and there's some, some collective action around improving the corpus of materials around uh, calculus and how to teach calculus, all the practices around it, that would be interesting. And it, But to do that, it's all going to have to be openly licensed during the public domain so that everybody's not violating copyright all the time. Um, and wouldn't it be interesting to, to be part of a community that was not just the three people that are in my hallway at the university who also teach calculus, but I'm part of an online network of thousands or, or more around the world that teach calculus. And then I can tap into that network when I'm stuck or when I need some advice on how to teach a concept, or if I'm looking for a new simulation. Maybe I don't know about the FET simulations and I say, I, I just can't get through to my students on this complex topic about calculus. Does anybody have any ideas? You know, if if that community existed, lots of people will have ideas on how to solve that problem. And so how do we shift education to that space? I think this is, again, um, sounds maybe strange, but I think the COVID-19 crisis is actually helping to accelerate thinking towards that end because I even see it now, I mean, very practical example, my children's school just closed. Uh, I mean, all schools closed in, in Berlin, Germany, basically. Um, so the school shifted to digital platform and now it's like homeschooling kind of, but via digital um they have to check in every day and they have uh, this digital platform where they have to access the resources. They have to they have the weekly plans, what they have to do. And um, this relies very much on people being able to find open education resources there. Um, I do not think that kids are much aware about open licensing and whatever they find they would use, whether it's licensed or not. But um that's a side note, but I think just this thinking towards basically we can shift a lot of our um, kind of um, learning and um, community-based things to online space. And for that, we need all this openness and the resources available and the spaces that are um, protected in the sense of that's legal to, to do this. Um, I think that's, um, that's going to be accelerated now by the, by the crisis. Another interesting, super interesting guest on our podcast. Um, um, I totally learned a lot about licenses. I actually just checked about the preprint servers because I really wanted to know. And yes, on the at least on the BioArchive, you do return your copyrights. So you uh, license your work. You can choose um, 
between um, CC by, CC by NC, CC by ND, CC by NC and D, or CC0, or you can even say no reuse. So um, you're totally in control of your article, which I find now kind of legally thinking interesting because whatever you publish on the preprint server, in many cases you can submit to a journal, like a normal normal, whatever, to the journal, right? So how does it work with the copyright then? Because whatever you, well, I don't know. This is a, this is a question for specialists. Maybe someone out there knows, but I find it interesting now because it's kind of confusing, but okay. Um, yeah, I think it's, uh, it was a really good introduction to CC, to Creative Commons licenses and kind of the rationale behind using them. Thank you for listening today. The, we'll be back in two weeks, hopefully. Sound editing was done by Paula Oliveira and the music was produced and recorded by Fabio de Miguel. We can reach us under OOSP underscore OrionPod on Twitter or write us an email on orion at mdc-berlin.de. This podcast was made available through Orion Open Science Project that is EU funded. And we look forward to talking to someone again in two weeks and hope you join us. Bye. Bye. <laughs>